Introduction How Maurice Hallwachs Died and How We Remember Him Entering one of the exhibition halls of the memorial site of the former German Wuchenwald concentration camp, just outside the picturesque town of Weimar, with its history of humanist thought, visitors encounter a small exhibit commemorating Maurice Hallwachs, the late French sociologist and student of Emile Durkheim. It is at this site where, as inmate 17161, Havlocks suffered pain and humiliation, and finally, in mid-March of 1945, shortly before the liberation of the camp and the end of World War II, death. In 1944, he had dared to demand information and justice from the authorities after the brutal murder of his Jewish in-laws, either by the Gestapo or by henchmen of the collaborative Vichy regime of his native France. His suffering and death, like that of millions of others in the Nazi concentration and extermination camps, was most certainly real. Yet our memory of this suffering is constructed. We learn about it through the Buchenwald display, a dedication in René Kuning's renowned Handbuch der Empirischen Sozialforschung, or in Louis Koser's introductory chapter to Holbach's texts on collective memory. Koser, a former president of the American Sociological Association, was himself a refugee from Nazi Germany and a victim of the Vichy France's internment camps. Narratives and memorials provided by later and present-day actors, including scholars and government agencies, are based on such accounts, and we will never know what shape the stories might have taken under Hovok's own authorship. It is through the former that Hallwax emerges as a ghostly, haunting figure in today's world, a theme to which we return in Chapter 4. We engage Maurice Hallwax's scholarship on collective memory in greater detail in Chapters 1 and 2. The Nazi atrocities that victimized Maurice Hallwax were also processed in courts of law, most famously in the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg, and these legal proceedings played a crucial role in documenting and memorializing the horrors of the Nazi past. Justice Robert Jackson, the American chief prosecutor at the tribunal, had hoped that they would do so, and he expressed his hope with often cited words, unless we write the record of this movement with clarity and precision. We cannot blame the future if in days of peace it finds incredible the accusatory generalities uttered during the war. We must establish incredible events by credible evidence. Justice Jackson was not alone in his hope, of course. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt clearly thought along similar lines. As his confidant, Judge Samuel Rosenman, noted, Roosevelt was determined that the question of Hitler's guilt and the guilt of his gangsters must not be left open to future debate. The whole nauseating matter should be spread out on a permanent record, under oath by witnesses, and with all the written documents. Roosevelt had come to believe that revisionist interpretations of World War I, which challenged the doctrine of Germany's primary guilt, had contributed to isolationist tendencies in the United States that Roosevelt despised. 
His interest in documenting the Nazi regime's aggression and atrocities through court proceedings and thus preserving them for posterity was thus not just an effort to seek accountability and to write history, but also a political strategy that was shared by his World War II allies. Today, Jackson's and Roosevelt's convictions, at least overlapping with Emile Durkheim's classical sociological ideas about the effects of legal proceedings, find renewed relevance in the light of recent atrocities, such as those in Rwanda, East Timor, Sudan's south, and its Darfur region, the former Yugoslavia, and Iraq.